Hey, it's Cindy Howes from the podcast Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. Check out our very special 250th episode featuring an interview and performance with Basic Folk co-host Lizzie No. I feel like most women I know have an experience where they've been working and working and working to perform and to execute and to please everyone else, and then things sort of fall apart a little bit in some way or another. And partying can actually be a really important step towards getting free because it shows you where you need to fall apart and being on the dance floor, like in community with Mm. other women and Mm -hmm. in community with queer people. Mm -hmm. Like for me, those experiences have been so important. This time, Lizzie is on the other side of the mic talking about and performing songs from their brand new album, Half Seas. Basic Folk's 250th episode with Lizzie No is streaming now on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. Join us there or wherever you get podcasts. Hello and welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. It's Cindy Howes. I am the host of this podcast. Thanks for joining us. If you have not signed up for our newsletter, you can do so at our website, basicfolk.com. It is an easy, fun, and free way to stay in touch with your favorite folk podcast. You can also follow us on social media at basicfolkpod. Let's get into today. Welcome to Folk Debate Club, our occasional crossover series with fellow folk pod Why We Write. So that is your second favorite folk pod. Today, to discuss lyrics versus melody, we welcome our panel of guests, music journalist and former singer-songwriter Kim Rule, Issa Burke of Lula Wiles and Eva O'Donovan fame, musician and Basic Folk guest host Lizzie No, and yours truly, Cindy Howes, the boss of Basic Folk. Our conversation begins with a case each for melody and lyrics from members of the panel. Some panelists are more fluid with their thoughts and feelings, and at least one of us changes sides mid-discussion. Some interesting opinions emerge. For instance, manipulation in music is no good if the listener can see through your bullshit. Part of the job of songwriters is to emotionally manipulate people. When you are feeling manipulated is when the person has missed, says Kim Rule. The panel talks about rawness. It can take lyrical editing before it can actually be presented to the public. It's sometimes hard to tell as the songwriter, like, how raw am I actually being, shares Issa Burke, who goes on to talk about how being raw in melody can be very effective. She points to her emotional guitar solo that was done during a difficult moment in her life in the Lula Wiles song, The Way That It Is, as one of her most favorite musical accomplishments. Bob Dylan comes up within 90 seconds of the debate. Don't worry, Taylor Swift, Maggie Rogers, Stevie Wonder, Adele, and Paul McCartney also make cameo appearances. And Lizzie No for the win. Lyrics are the hand-holding that we need to bring us into the glory of instrumental music. End quote. Hope you enjoy. We had a good time doing this, so we are definitely going to do it again soon. Please enjoy Folk Debate Club Lyrics versus Melody on Basic Folk. How did this come to be, this episode of Basic Folk and why we write this collaboration between hosts Kim Rule? Lizzie No and Cindy Howes, that is me. Well, we were discussing different controversial topics in the music world. 
and the topic of melody versus lyrics came up. I threw this idea out as kind of like a throwaway topic, but I was very surprised to see that it it, uh, garnered a lot of interest from Kim and Lizzie, and then I presented it on Twitter as sort of like a a veiled subtweet, and it got (laughs) a lot of traction, uh, including a response from uh, one of our favorite friends and collaborators, Issa Burke. Um, Everyone is here right now. Hello, Kim. Hello, Lizzie. Hello, Issa. Hello. Hello. So when it comes to lyrics versus melody, I think this is going to be an interesting conversation to have today. I am the only non-musician in our conversation today, so I will just say my brain connects with melody, and I think it takes several listens, at least two or three listens, until the lyrics set in. Then I feel like if the lyrics are bad... I feel manipulated, like when you fall for like a narcissist or a sociopath and you don't find out until like three months in. You know what I'm saying? Yes. I'll also say if the lyrics are bad and the melody is amazing, I can still forgive usually. And I will say I wish I was a lyrics first person. I feel like lyrics first people are deep thinkers, fully present and basically our nation's thought leaders. Um, so that's that's where I stand. Now, I'd love to pose the question of lyrics first, people. Who would like to go first? Hi, it is me, Cindy. I am a lyrics person. This is Lizzie No, by the way, for people listening at home. I am the lyricist of our time. Some are calling me the voice of a generation. <laughs> It's me that's calling me that. I love to call myself the voice of our generation. And I am lyrics first because I think lyrics are a really accessible and transferable way to make music relatable across space and time. Like we have a lot of ancient folk songs that we've been singing for centuries. And most contemporary people can't read Uh, like medieval musical notation, but we can recognize the lyrics. And that's what has stuck with us over the centuries. Like people have been singing Scarborough Fair forever. The other thing about it is that like, you don't have to be a singer or a musician to be able to remember and relate to a great set of lyrics. And a lot of contemporary artists who people really, really love aren't necessarily known for their musicality, but might be known more for their lyrics. So like, I'm not going to name any names, but Bob Dylan, you know, a lot of his fans say, like, I don't even love his voice, but I love his poetry and his lyrics, and that's what sticks with me. Lyrics are sometimes, like, the first most relatable thing that people can take away from a song, and they're transferable across space and time. Uh, Did I win the debate? (laughs) Yes. You know what's really interesting fact about me is that Bob Dylan is, like, my favorite musician. And I'm a melody first person. Mm. Just throwing that out there. I actually really like his voice. I just threw it out there because he's an example of someone that people love to go to when they're like, don't love his voice, love his lyrics. And those people are fools. I, Issa Burke, am, am coming out as team Bob Dylan is a good singer. And we can we could do a whole other podcast episode on that, but that's I'm planting that that flag. 
right now. I think he's a really good singer. He gets the job done and that's what a singer's supposed to do. And like phrasing, like his rhythmic phrasing is so hip. Kim, what's your feeling? I just want to say about Bob Dylan, he is sung in so many different styles and masterfully. And even when he has sung without any discernible melody, because his lyrics are so strong, the intrinsic melody of his lines like comes through somehow. People will do their best, Bob Dylan, but like it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't work. You know, like what he does, there's like a non melody melody that's happening when he's singing, and it's freaking brilliant. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and nobody else can do it. When other people sing his songs, they sing the melody that they hear him doing. You know, as a hardcore lyrics person. Along with, you know, just like Lizzie, what you were saying was fantastic. And and I agree with that. But I would add also that songs going way back in folk music, like it's how we shared history, like it's how we shared the story of the of our people, and how we learned about other people, we would sing through that, you know, it's like, that's how the stories were conveyed. You know, the fact that that continues in modern folk music that we sing about our people with lyrics that have this intrinsic rhythm and melody and, you know, like lend themselves to being sung in this conversational way, I think is the most powerful thing. But when I, and I can analyze that to a really annoying nerdy extent, but like when I turn on Taylor Swift, I go, (laughs) I go straight to the lyrics, you know, or, you know, like I want to know what the lyrics are before I decide if I like the song. I can't just go in on the melody because I feel like I'm going to be, like you said, disappointed in the end if the, if it turns out the Bamboozled. lyrics suck. Okay, I really wanted to bring up Taylor Swift in this conversation. In my argument in favor of lyrics, I actually really don't like most of her music, but I think she's an excellent example of why lyrics matter more and more because of the way that we consume music now. So much of music is being consumed on social media right now. And and artists like Taylor Swift are finding ways to make the lyrics be front and center, especially because captions are super important now and people are looking for ways to grab snippets of songs, the most catchy part, the most memeable part. And that makes the lyrics like the most important part of the song. And I'm thinking about this, her song Antihero, which I, I knew that phrase it's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me from TikTok before I ever heard the song. And it's just because that lyric is so catchy. And she and her team probably promoted that intentionally because it's such um, a catchy and memorable quick soundbite. That's all based on the lyrics. But I think that like, like if I sing, it's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. Like that's catchy. Yeah. It's not just like, I th- I think the phrase like the phrase is memeable on its own but I think the fact that it was set to like a catchy melody it's also catchy because of the say it with me rhythm uh is it that I think that's I think that is also part of the reason why it caught on but anyway continue Lizzie cuz I hear what you're saying Lisa can you sing it like Bob Dylan now? <laughs> it's me. Hi. I'm the father. It's me. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we're keeping that in 
I have a question. Everybody on the panel could probably answer this question except for me. But Issa, uh, you are becoming more and more known far and wide as being uh, an instrumentalist, a lead guitar player. Can you speak to communicating uh, and storytelling through your instrument versus your lyrics? Yes, I can. Yeah, so (laughs) I would not... I wouldn't say that I'm, like, specifically a melody person or a lyrics person, but I will say that in terms of what I hear first when I listen to music is really similar to you, Cindy. I often tend to hear, like, various, not just melody, but, like, various musical elements before I hear lyrics, and I think that, at least right now, I am more interested in my own music in, like in storytelling through sound than through lyrics, mainly just because I find writing lyrics to be um, excruciating. (laughs) And I don't know, I think especially as like a a lead instrumentalist, if I'm like accompanying a song that someone else is singing, a lot of what I am trying to do is like respond to the lyrics and like recast the lyrics in a certain light or emphasize the lyrics with what I'm playing. And I also think that, you know, part of why I can't really say whether I'm like a melody or a lyrics person is because I think so much of what makes music interesting is like the way that the two work together, right? Kind of like I was just saying with the Taylor Swift thing. And yeah, so I think I was thinking about this Laura Marling song, like just now as I was making my coffee and there is this this song called Strange Girl. And Mm. the lyrics of the chorus are... I love you, my strange girl, my lonely girl, my angry girl, my brave. And I was like, that's like really like, that's kind of intense and sad. But the way the song is set, it's like really upbeat. She's doing this kind of like, like Joni Mitchell Freeman in Paris strum. Uh, (laughs) And the chorus is like, she's singing in this very kind of like conversational tone. And so it makes the lyrics feel really like, It's really, like, friendly and upbeat. You know, if she'd written that song slightly differently, it would have, that chorus would have felt totally different and you would have heard the, like, lonely, angry in a different way. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So Manipulation. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But isn't that what we're all trying to do anyway? (laughs) We're trying to manipulate people's feelings. Cindy, you mentioned earlier being manipulated, and I think that's, like, a pro-melody argument. That's, like, the witchy scary power of melody that it can lull you into a mood and have you not even noticing what the content of the song is. Years ago, I was at a wedding and I remember at the reception, Cecilia was playing and just about everybody was up and tapping their toes and dancing. And I was sort of furious. Like, this is such bad luck to be dancing to a song about cheating and heartbreak at a wedding. Um, (laughs) But that's the power of melody, y'all. Mm-hmm. Uh, did I just become a melody person? Plot twist. Flip <laughs> flopper. <laughs> that was well done. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> a stunning reversal. A little bit more about musical manipulation as a a radio programmer sitting there and like listening to song after song in a music meeting and 
there's like a certain type of song where I just feel like it's so manipulative that I cannot get on board and like the the um like how dare you try to present this to me as a song that that people will like like you're not fooling me um and the the one band I can think of that like constantly gives me this feeling of ki- is Kings of Leon where mm. it's like they have this like amazing quote unquote amazing melody and all these like amazing like rock lyrics but it just feels like neither the melody or the lyrics and of course like it's all subjective but i don't know if if anyone else as a music listener has like listened to a song and been like this is trying to be something that it is definitely not the whole presentation like the the, i feel like it wouldn't matter if the lyrics were great the production totally production is one of the biggest is one of the major offenders in terms of like bamboozling you into liking a uh fundamentally not that great song <laughs> I, it has happened yeah. to me. <laughs> you know, as a critic, like, I've heard so much really bad music, you know, like, most of what is said to me is just never in a million years going to connect to me. And like, honestly, okay, Kim, like, if you didn't like my latest demos, you could have just emailed me privately. <laughs> 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 but like, having like come to this role, this job that I've been doing having been a musician for like 30 years before that it has revolutionized my relationship with recorded music because it's so stunning when somebody writes a good song and gets it right in the studio and gets it well produced and gets it to me you know like Mm -hmm. it's so incredibly rare it's a miracle (laughs) but I still like the thing I want to hear first is like, what do you have to say? Mm-hmm. You know, what are you what are you trying to accomplish here? And to like address the whole emotional manipulation thing. Like, I think that that's if somebody can do it right, if somebody can do it well to where like, it's sort of like watching Meryl Streep act, you know, like you don't you believe that that you believe it. I think that that is so hard to do. And it's so effective. Most people, and I'm obsessed with this. I saw Maggie Rogers, who I love so much, said this thing. Here we about, go again. Yeah, Maggie Rogers and Taylor Swift. I'll just go to the mat for these two any day. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that would be a fun fight. But she said something to the effect of, like, you know, artists feel so hard, you know, like feel everything all the time. It's intense, it's huge, and it, like that's the job is to feel the thing and then get it into a three-minute clip so that the people who are shoving their feelings down all day long, all week long, can feel something for three minutes. You know, to that point, like, there's part of the job is to emotionally manipulate people. And, you know, when you are feeling manipulated is when the person has missed. But when you can just turn the song on... when you don't notice you're being manipulated. (laughs) Right. Like, when you know you're being manipulated, it's like swing and a miss. That's really interesting because who we find believable can change over time and change depending on our historical context. And I actually really like when the machinery and the artifice of a song is laid bare. Mm -hmm. The romantic poets always wrote about the thingness of a poem, like, look at this piece of paper I'm holding upon which some words are written or... Look at this vase. Once it was mud. 
now it's a vase, it's telling a story, et cetera, et cetera. And it's really cool to see like the process behind the song. So the person isn't pretending like, oh, this is just a, a divine idea that I've channeled from the gods. Like they're showing you step by step what's going on behind the song. That's why I love those like great funk and soul songs from the 70s where they're like, bring in the drums <laughs> because yeah like piece by piece they're kind of like building the song with you <laughs> and subconsciously i feel like i do that as a listener and so it's so fun when the band actually lets me in on that process and shows me you know how the sausage is made totally and i also feel like you know i i did just say a second ago that um you know the production can be the thing that bamboozles us and i think in some cases that is true there also are a lot of cases where the production is like part of the song. It's like part of the point of the song, right? And like with a lot of those old funk and soul songs, like the lyrics are very much not the point. Like some of them have great lyrics, but some of them just have like three phrases that they repeat in an excitable way <laughs> throughout the song. And the point <laughs> is like the drum groove. The point is like the drum groove and like the super tight horn section and like the guitar riffs and like the point is to get people to dance and to feel something in their bodies, maybe not so much in their brains. And like that. Yes. And that's my, that brings me to, I guess like the the point that I initially made on Twitter when I, when Cindy dangled the bait and I chomped hard. <laughs> um but I think my, like, one of my most strongly held opinions about music is that, like, people can prefer lyrics or melody or chords or grooves or whatever. But I think that different artists, different individual songs, different styles of music have their own internal priorities. Like, Bob Dylan is someone for whom, like, lyrics are very much number one priority, I would say, with most of his music, mm -hmm. maybe not all of it, but like funk is, groove is paramount, rhythm is paramount. Rufus Wainwright is someone who I think of as being really melody first. He writes these like incredibly beautiful melodies and sings them beautifully. You know, there are other elements of his music that are great, but for him, for me at least, my response to his music is like the melody is the most important thing. You know, you could set you know, the priorities of any any artist or style of music that you want. But I think that's something that's important to think about that, like, the priorities for all music don't necessarily have to be the same. I think the interesting thing about that is that the priorities can shift depending on what the artist intends, but also depending on what the audience expects. Like, if you are a band playing live mm -hmm. to a group yeah. of people standing on a dance floor, do not present a lyrics first song. It's disrespectful <laughs> because it doesn't encourage people to dance. Like you have to, as an artist, fulfill the like the contract of what your audience needs and like what the community expects of you. I think emo music is kind of an interesting example of that because yes, of course, it is performed live, but I think a lot of artists and producers in that genre are aware that people are gonna be consuming their music alone in headphones. So the lyrics become so important because it's this individual experience of like basically the artist talking to one person and telling them a story. In conclusion, 
there are different rules for different settings. And that is a really fun way to play the game of music and life. You get to imagine who's listening, where they're listening, how many people are listening, what's their background, what's the medium that it's coming through. Like, are they listening in headphones on the bus? Are they listening in car speakers? Are they listening on the dance floor? Are they listening um, on the radio? Like, is it background music in a restaurant? There's so many different ways that people experience music and each one requires like different priorities. And that's why the lyrics versus melody versus chord progression versus rhythm versus arrangement, et cetera, et cetera, can like change in importance depending on the setting. The other thing is like, that's why I feel like a song that has great lyrics, a great melody, and a social relevance that's able to capture people's attention and maybe inspire people to act is to me like that lightning in a bottle that happens so rarely because songs like that have to hit so many of these metrics at once. Like, you know, like what's going on? Like that's to me like the the ultimate hits all the boxes. I want to I want to comment on that um, background in a restaurant because if they're playing music with lyrics that I know I cannot have a conversation in a store, mm. coffee shop, restaurant. Like I have a weird disorder where when there's a song on that I know I have to sing along and <laughs> um, <laughs> much to the chagrin of my loved ones, we'll, di- <laughs> we'll discuss this important life-changing decision we're making together during the instrumental bridge, because that's when I can focus on you again. Right. <laughs> I I understand that. I mean, I feel that there should be less background music in public places in general. Restaurants especially. I do not think that music should be played while people are eating unless it's like an intimate meal where you've like as a group decided on a playlist that is going to accompany the food. <laughs> but listen, as a former programmer of restaurants, if you have good music on in the background that complements the environment, we shouldn't be having to deal with any of this except for Kim's disorder. <laughs> yeah, there's something that I think we are sort of neglecting to mention. Uh, and sort of, I think it sort of complicates our conversation here. And that is the existence of instrumental music. Right. Because I think... In which lyrics are really the least important thing. (laughs) Because there aren't any. (laughs) Yeah, that's the question. Like, is spoken word music? Is instrumental only music music? But there's still melody. On the subject of spoken word, I feel like what we were saying earlier about Bob Dylan and how even when he's not singing a discernible melody, it's still, like, really melodic. Like... That also applies to spoken word and, dare I say, rap. Like, whenever people, you know, whenever people are like, oh, yeah, like, whenever people are like, oh, rappers aren't musicians, rappers aren't singers, I'm like, well, A, there's like a 99.9% chance that you're at least a little bit racist, and B, (laughs) and B, like, don't you think that when, like, Bob Dylan sings like that or like when Johnny Cash does a talking blues like is that not still music I guess this kind of connects to Cindy's first question to me 
that I only like medium answered, which is like, what are you saying when you're not using lyrics to say it? And I think that instrumental music, it can communicate just as much as lyrical music, but in a more, you know, abstract and subconscious and maybe more open to interpretation way. And it's like, you know, it's an abstract painting instead of a painting of a chair. It's like dance. Yeah, it's like, it's an abstract, like, there's a painting of a chair by a window that looks really cozy, or there's, like, an abstract painting that makes you feel cozy when you look at it. Totally. Yeah, so in a way, instrumental music is for the enlightened. Um, Cindy started this podcast by saying that lyrics people are on the next plane of consciousness, but really, maybe, (laughs) I'm starting to believe that maybe lyrics are just the (laughs) hand-holding that we the lowly need <laughs> to bring us into the glory of wow. melody and instruments Whoa. say that i want to <laughs> throw something in here herbie hancock he made this record like in the early 2000s where he had like a bunch of guests on and one of them was susan tedeschi and they did that um joe cocker song about being an alien flying in the sky or whatever. It's an amazing song, but there's a there's a part in the song where he's Herbie Hancock is doing a solo and he's playing it and you can hear him go in the background like he's singing along cool with the with the melody and I remember we played it on the radio station I was working at at the time like so many times and I'm like why is he doing that? And so I asked a guitarist friend of mine and he was like, because I, I saw this guitarist also doing that, like singing along. And he was like, I'm singing the next note I want to I wanna hit, which yeah. is cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I love when instrumentalists sing the melodies that they're playing. Uh, shout out to the incredible Jackie Venson, who is a guitarist, singer extraordinaire. She does this so beautifully and so joyfully. It's such a fun way to get inside the performer's brain mm. and and like feel like you're part of their process even when you're not up there. Yeah, I love when drummers do that. You can see <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But also, I also love when a band is on stage and the instrumentalists don't have a microphone in front of them, but they're singing oh, along. That's my favorite thing ever. That makes me feel so happy. <laughs> yeah, same here. It's like, oh, you love the song. Off-mic utterances are one of my most important spiritual practices. Mm-hmm. <laughs> when I do a Lizzie No set with a band, like as the tour goes on, more and more of the show is being done off-mic. And we are probably going to mm-hmm. hit a point where the mic is just up there. But most of the show is like inside jokes within the band that the audience can feel and experience, but like can't hear the words. I don't know what that's about, but it feels like a special yeah. secret. One thing that uh, did come to mind is thinking about rawness in music. Mm. We've been talking about Bob Dylan quite a bit. Uh, Bob Dylan made a divorce record that he never released because Whoa. it's too dark. You know, and I was thinking about the guy from the microphones, Phil Elverum, who made a record after his wife died of cancer, and it's like, very raw to listen to. I wondered what y'all think of rawness 
and lyrics and rawness in in melody and if that impacts the way you hear a song yeah I feel like I mean I think I feel like that is part of why I find lyric writing so excruciating is that like it's sometimes hard to tell as the songwriter like how raw am I actually being but there are some things that I have written that have never seen the light of day because it just feels too much like I'm you know pulling my own internal organs out for all to see ouch (laughs) um (laughs) and maybe we'll you know we'll eventually see the light of day in some form but I also have found that like Sometimes playing music can feel raw in the same way. And I didn't, like, like without, you know, without lyrics. And I didn't totally realize that until um, my former-ish band, Lula Wiles, was making our last record, um, which is called Shame and Sedition. And there are a couple of specifically electric guitar performances of mine on that album that as we were recording them, that felt like I was pulling my internal organs out in a, in a certain way. Like there's, there's a song of Ellie's called the way that it is on that record, which is, I've been kind of like hesitating to talk about this song, this whole conversation, because I didn't want to be too like, I don't know. It feels like an egomaniac to be like, well, here's a example. That's my own music. Um, but my electric guitar playing on that song is like one of my favorite things that I've done. And I also think it's just like, it's an incredible song. Ellie Buckland has written a lot of devastating breakup songs and that is top of the heap. (laughs) Um, And at the time we recorded, I was like two weeks out from a truly eviscerating breakup, uh, Mm. which took place over FaceTime in June, 2020. Dude. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. If you experienced a uh, virtual breakup during lockdown, you may be entitled to compensation. Whoa. Uh, Or you should be. But because of that, I felt like so raw during the making of that record. And when I was playing guitar on that song, as Ellie was singing about a devastating breakup of her own, (laughs) I just felt like I was pouring all of my feelings about that breakup into what I was playing on the guitar. And I was like, there is absolutely no way that I can express what, how like sad and angry I am feeling, except by playing this same note on the electric guitar really loudly over and over and over and over and over again. Now I'm kind of like, I don't think I can ever write a breakup song as good as <laughs> just like playing that one note over and over again on the electric guitar. Wow. But I think part of it is that there was also... There was also Ellie's lyrics happening, right? Like it is, it's all, it's all the things working together. But yeah, I don't know. I think the, I think the idea of rawness is really, really interesting, Cindy. I'm glad you brought that up. Mm. You know, going back to all the horrible music that's been made, um, (laughs) you know, when you're in pain and there's no way to, you don't see the other side, like music is a really great way to vent doesn't necessarily mean everybody like anybody else is going to get anything out of your rawest moment but unless like things like that like that's where you are a highly practiced trained artist you know like you 
all your playing and practicing and studying and everything you've put into your life as a musician, all those tools, like that toolbox just opened in that moment and you were able to like get there down an artist path, you know? It wasn't just like Mm -hmm. wide open darkness in front of you. Sometimes when people write from a raw place, they're just writing into the wide open darkness. And like, there's value in that. Like, that is way better than like harming yourself or others, you know, or like binging or drinking, whatever, whatever you're going to do as your vice. And when it comes to like the, the contract between like the artist and their and an audience, the audience needs to feel that moment, but they also need to feel the other side of that tunnel. You know, like there needs to be a, a place where you get to the other side of that solo. You have felt that release and the audience can see the release, you know, yeah. like they don't end the yeah. song. Like there was no, there was no closure, you know, there's gotta yeah, be right. like some kind of perspective before you bring it to an audience. Otherwise it's a toxic relationship. You know, if you don't yeah. if you don't bring that So I think that there's there's a line where like you have to make art out of it. You can't just spew your nastiest diarrhea all over everybody. <laughs> You've gotta wipe it up. Certainly you know? Not. Sorry. <laughs> Foul. I don't want to see your inbox. Like who knows what garbage people are sending you. Yeah, really. <laughs> I think catharsis is so important. And I sometimes wish that artists and audiences took it more seriously. Uh, That idea that like something unique is happening in the room here and now, and it has the potential to affect people. And we're all responsible for how it goes. That's why hecklers feel like such a violation of the social contract, interrupting what's going on. And also like, From time to time, you'll see a band perform live, and it seems like they're really not engaged with the material, not engaged with the audience, and that feels like a violation as well. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess circling back on what you were saying earlier, Lizzie, about, like, artifice, I feel like that's part of what the artifice of music is, right? It's like you sort of acting as a past version of yourself who was experiencing something, or you acting as a fictional character you've made up in your song that is experiencing something. That remove is what allows you to like present it in a way that will be coherent to an audience, not just like reading your diary out loud on stage. It's like reading a, you know, edited for clarity and content version of your diary on stage. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's also, like, it isn't just that, you know, we need to, like, I'm not necessarily saying that, like, musicians need to be, like, turning down our feelings or, like, that's not the point, right? It's, like, it's just that what makes sense to you alone in your bedroom, in your diary, just may not make literal sense to an audience. That artifice, like, has the sort of paradoxical effect of, like, making it feel more true to an audience. Kim, do you have any thoughts on, like, why it is that you tend to latch onto lyrics first? Um, no. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) I'm a a writer. I write words. Like, ultimately, I, you know, like, in my life as a songwriter, I would labor and labor and labor and labor over lyrics. And then 
I didn't write lyrics first. Like I would always pick up my guitar first and I would play my guitar for a long time. And once the words came, I would sit and write the, the lyrics. So there you go. I started with melody as a songwriter, but like, but once the words came, like they took over and ultimately like I wound up making a living writing words. Like I don't write music anymore unless I'm singing about farts to my children. Um, (laughs) Release the tapes. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that like, I just personally, I'm wired toward words. Like Hmm. I want to hear what people have to say. If I'm at a party, like, I hate extraneous noise. I want to be in the corner. Like I want to ask somebody what their story is and sit there and ask them questions and hear their words. You know, like I'm not the, I'm not the noise person, but I do appreciate like, like I love loud screaming punk rock and I love like hard, big booty shaking dance music. You know, like I can enjoy music when there are no words involved very, very much. But I think the reason that I work in folk music and I seek out, you know, meaningful turns of phrase is just because that's just how my brain is wired. Yeah. Yeah. As a melody person, I really love Bon Iver. I love his melodies. His lyrics make no sense, but the way that he presents them in his songs they just like shoot right into my, it feels like they're shooting like right into my soul and they don't make any sense. And um, I've been thinking in our our conversation about the limits of language. Uh, As somebody who it's like taken a long time for me to be a good communicator with other people, I feel like maybe for me, that's why I lean towards melody because melody transcends any kind of limitations that, that language presents. Hundred percent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Language is such a small percentage of how we express ourselves and experience the world. I think I think Stevie Wonder is a yeah. great example of this. I love Stevie Wonder so much. And there are a number of songs where I either don't know the words or don't particularly care about the lyrics, but he has some of the best melodies in pop music and he and he creates this instrumental soundscape. And I really feel like that's what people keep coming back for. Even though I love reading people's lyrics, reading a lyrics book feels funny sometimes because it's divorced from the sound. Um, and, and at this point, I feel like lyrics are sometimes the last thing that I go to with some artists. Yeah, because it's like, I think in a lot of cases, it, like the lyrics without the music, it's like, what's the point? It makes no sense. And it's just a completely different piece of art. Yeah. Totally. And it's, I think the lyrics, like the, the, the melody and the chords have such an impact on how we receive the lyrics that to take the lyrics out of context sometimes feels unfair, depending on the song. I want to say that, you know, it occurred to me while Lizzie was talking that um, it could be that I want to get to the lyrics first so I can participate in the song because mm. I'm not necessarily I'm not gonna have my any instrument on me but I can always sing along and like I want to be in the music I want to be in the in the song you know yeah um so that may be that's my instrument you know maybe yeah on the subject of Stevie Wonder I just remembered I had an experience where I had to learn 
I had to learn a couple of Stevie Wonder songs for a wedding. I was like playing in a wedding band. And I had to learn the lyrics to Sir Duke, a song I've heard hundreds of times. (laughs) But I had never actually paid attention to the lyrics. And I was like, these lyrics are so dumb. (laughs) it's just a like it's just a stupid song about how music is great it's an amazing song to be clear but i was reading lyrics and i was like what (laughs) how have i never noticed that there's a whole section of this song where he just like lists artists that he likes (laughs) it's so great but it's transcendent it totally is and with the music like i was reading the lyrics online and i was like are you kidding me and then in the context of the song it's like great Totally, we're having a great time, like, singing a song about how much we love music. <laughs> but yeah, that, like, I feel like that that moment was a, was a really good example of how sometimes the lyrics can be so secondary and so dependent on what the music brings to them. I feel really strongly, and I've always felt really strongly, even as a kid growing up in the evangelical church, there are hymns that have alt melodies. And I've And I always had really strong opinions on which melody I preferred, which I guess is evidence for the lyrics side of things, because if a song can affect millions of people, in spite of not even having a a consistent melody, that shows the power of the lyrics. But for me, the melody is what drew me in and, and, and what I felt most strongly about. I have really betrayed my side here. I came into this podcast as a lyrics person, but guess what? She's on team Melody now. As As you said earlier, we're queering the binary. Well, it seems as though we are getting closer to an hour. Um, So I I wanted to give you all an opportunity to share final thoughts. Lizzie, it seems like you've experienced a lot of growth in this conversation. Uh, Kim, maybe not so much. Uh, And Issa, you are always fluid. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I I will say that uh, when I took the bait of that question on Twitter, my intention was to run into the building that is the lyrics versus melody debate with a grenade in my hand and blow it up. (laughs) And because I fundamentally disagree with the premise of that question. And... Uh, you know, was thrilled to discover when I arrived here in this Zoom that we all kind of disagree with the premise of that question. We've had a good time here today. I would like to offer my condolences to Rhythm, the neglected stepchild of this conversation. We will speak to her and honor yeah. her in a follow-up episode. Absolutely. Agreed. And and to to my girl, Chords, Uh, I think sometimes when we say melody, what we mean is all of the musical elements, but the word melody does not mean all of the musical elements. It means melody. So chords, we love you. We care about you. I care about you. (laughs) Adele cares about you. Paul McCartney cares about you. And he also cares about everyone else. (laughs) That's why I love Paul McCartney. Kim? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> i what yeah. what they said i completely agree i think it would be a fun conversation to debate chords and rhythm maybe we do that next time well this has been great thank you so much to kim rule host of 
Why We Write. Uh, Issa Burke, who is currently tearing it up with Aoife O'Donovan. Anything else happening with you, Issa, that we should let people know about? Um, no. There will be more soon, though. Things, things happening. Lizzie No, multi-talented thought leader, joining us today. Uh, and Lizzie, do you want to um, wrap us up here? I would love to wrap us up. Thank you so much for listening to this crossover episode of Why We Write and Basic Folk. It has been an honor to take over your podcast, Kim, and hear your brilliant musical thoughts, Isa. We love rhythm. We love melody. We love, we love lyrics. <laughs> we love music. And we love all of our listeners and each other. How's that? Hell Wonderful. Yeah. Very, very good. Thanks for we listening. We love music. <laughs> this episode of Basic Folk was produced by me, Cindy Howes, and it took a super long time. So I hope you enjoyed it. Our music is composed by Alex Stanton. Basic focus on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. Thanks again to our panel, Kim Rule of Why We Write, the awesome Issa Burke, as well as our guest host and best friend, Lizzie No. You can find all of our episodes of Basic Folk wherever you get podcasts at our website, basicfolk.com. You can search for us on the SiriusXM app under Basic Folk, or you can check us out on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. All right, we'll talk to you next time. Thank you again for listening. Bye! Bye.